Hi, Bobby here. If you're wondering if you're seeing things, because this episode looks real similar to one we released a few weeks ago, it is, but I can explain. So what happened was when we scheduled the release originally, something went wrong with our upload software, which linked an episode of Dating Games, my other podcast, rather than this episode you're about to hear today. Of course, we fixed it. Of course, we fixed it quickly. But one of the fun quirks of podcasting is, depending where you listen, it takes different amounts of time for a change to be reflected. And also, if your device has been really nifty and downloaded the episode straight away, then on most listening services, you won't actually be prompted that there's a new version of the episode. There's a different file that's the actual up-to-date correct one. If, if you wanted the technical behind the scenes, that there it is. The upshot of all of this is most people did not get to hear this episode and it's a really great conversation. So we're keen for it to still get its moment. So thank you for your patience. Thank you to our wonderful guest. And next week we'll be back to regular programming with a totally new episode recorded now that I'm back in Dublin. More on that next week. For now, enjoy this one. This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps, and each week with an inspiring guest, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. So, here we go. This week, we're talking all about unexplained illnesses. And as we discussed in the episode, this is a term that there's some definite nuance to and to an extent, I wonder if it's a bit of a red herring because it doesn't necessarily mean in medical terms what the words there might suggest. But I thought we'll include it, we'll keep it as it is because there's hopefully going to be some intrigue to that, if nothing else, and you've clicked on the episode. So here we are. And today's guest is Susan B. Trachman, who is a practicing psychiatrist with over 30 years experience in exploring what are known as medically unexplained illnesses through the lens of psychiatry. She does this both through private practice and her roles at George Washington University, where she teaches medical students, residents, and post-residency fellows of psychiatry. She's also a columnist with Psychology Today, so, you know, keeping busy, keeping very busy. And off the top of my head, so is previous guest, Dr. Julie Ansis who I talked to for an episode all about technology as a factor in mental health. So there's a fun little link. I I don't know if they know each other. I didn't have the chance to ask. But what I do know is this was such a great conversation. We got into so much, so many examples of links between our mental and our physical health, which as someone who knows I don't mind admitting a lot more about the mental health side than physical health. I'm really glad we were able to go into so much depth. Susan also shares a lot about her early experiences growing up, which I found very relatable, very illuminating about, you know, how the household that we grow up in and family history of certain conditions can so influence our mental health and in in many ways, the person that we become. And so, yeah. That's all I'll say for now. Super inspiring guest. I love chatting to. I even said to her on air how easy she is to talk to. And I, I really can say any psychiatrist I've got the privilege to interview, that has been the case. And that's such a wonderful asset to have 
when this is a profession that so often involves asking people about such personal experiences and elements of their life that they may not be comfortable sharing. So, yeah, I'm realising in this moment maybe that's part of why I relate to psychiatrists because I also get that experience with a lot of my guests. But anyway, we'll get into the episode in a moment. I've also just got an update from the Irish Podcast Awards. We finalised our nominations for the first ever year of the awards that I'm involved in. And so by the time you hear this, the nominations will be fully, fully finalised and will have been announced on the 26th of July. So if you're looking for potential new favourite podcasters from Ireland, do check out irishpodcastawards.ie. With that all said, we'll get into this interview with Susan B. Trachman in a moment. But first, who's our sponsor? Let's find out. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. My name is Susan Trackman. I am a practicing psychiatrist outside of Washington, D.C. I am not a D.C. native. I grew up in a suburb a very close in the suburb of New York City, one of two children. At the time, I didn't recognize the fact that there was significant mental illness in my family. It was only as I got older and then later went on into various fields of mental health. Initially, I was trained as a social worker and then I went to medical school after that. But looking back on it, my assessment is that I, I come from at least two generations of folks who had various types of mental illness. Not the kind we talk about when we say people who have, for example, you know, thought disorders or, you know, have distortions in, you know, their thinking in terms of what's real or what's not. But on my mother's side, I clearly have at least two generations of anxiety disorders. My grandmother, who I was very close to, my maternal grandmother, came to this country when she was, we're not sure, either 12 or 13, because in those days, They didn't exactly document how old they were Mm -hmm. on their passports. But she and her older sister, my grandma Molly, and her older sister Anna came to this country when they were probably about 12 and 14, not speaking the language. They came on boat, as people did in those days, and settled on the Lower East Side of New York, where young Jewish girls would go to work in garment factories. And my grandmother did have some relatives who were already in the States. I believe she lived with one of those relatives. But as she used to like to tell me, you know, she worked for, I think, about $5 a day and a piece of herring on on Fridays. Hmm. So in the course of coming here at a very young age, clearly without her family, who was left behind in Europe, and with her older sister, they made their way. But I believe my grandmother always had a history of, of anxiety and I do recall any time she'd be leaving home to go on any kind of vacation, she would get very anxious. And that's not surprising to me, given the fact that, again, she left her home at a very young age to a place totally unknown. 
mostly because her family wanted to save her during what was going to be World War I. And so she and my aunt, Anna, survived. They both married. My grandmother got her GED. I still have her GED at home. She gave birth to two children, my mother, Sylvia, and my uncle, Eddie. And I know growing up with my mom that she was an anxious person. And she married my father, who was not an anxious person, but who I realized later was someone who had a significant personality disorder. My father was very narcissistic. He was very misogynistic. And he could be, he could be verbally cruel. He was never physically abusive but he could be emotionally and verbally abusive. And yeah, my mother, I think, always trying to play the role of peacemaker, would try to negotiate between, you know, whatever mood my father was in and myself and my sister. My sister also developed a significant anxiety disorder and was quite anxious in terms of approaching anything, you know, new or unexpected or something that couldn't be, you know, within her control. I would not necessarily consider myself as an anxious person. I mean, I certainly can be made anxious given the right circumstances, but for whatever reason, I think I developed the capacity to manage a lot of chaos because there was often chaos in my family. My father was mercurial. It was never clear what kind of mood he would be in, depending upon, I guess, what kind of day he had and would pretty much verbally take it out on my mom and then through extension myself and my sister. So, you know, again, growing up in a household where things were not psychologically peaceful, so to speak, I think was my early, my earliest reference to what it was like growing up, you know, in an anxious household. I mean, mm-hmm. things were not necessarily comfortable because you kind of never knew what was going to happen from day to day. And, you know, we know now the kids who grow up in that kind of environment commonly develop anxiety disorders. So I think one of the ways that I probably was able to deal with that was by being the peacemaker. Ultimately, I became the peacemaker between my parents who would be fighting and protecting my sister who's younger than me. So I kind of got good and became comfortable in that role of, you know, keeping the peace, so to speak, you know, keeping things relatively stable But I think that that also leads to one feeling like they always like to have to be in control because if things get out of control, oftentimes that was not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Now, looking back on it again, I've talked about my mom's family. My father's side of the family, there was a different kind of mental illness. I was never close to my paternal grandparents who lived in a different state, but my paternal grandmother clearly had a significant personality disorder. She was very black and white. She could be very cruel. I think she probably passed that down to my dad. And I know for a fact that my paternal grandmother either threatened or attempted suicide several times. I don't know all the details, but I do remember coming home from college at one point and my parents were out and I remember taking a phone call. And and again, the, the memory is sort of vague because it's been a while. But I do remember taking a phone call indicating that my grandmother had tried to kill herself. I don't recall how. And I remember staying up late because my folks were out, staying up late so that when they came home, I could tell them. And I remember telling that to my mom and my father. And I think my father was like, he kind of shrugged it off. I guess that's kind of what he was used to. And, you know, 
they went to bed. Wow. So she didn't die. She lived. Uh, she lived. And sorry, who was it you received the phone call from? I don't remember. I don't recall whether it was someone from the hospital or it could have been my aunt. This vague memory of this happening, but I'm not specific about who it was that made the phone call to me. Mm-hmm. The other thing I remember as a kid was, and perhaps this was the beginning of my interest in this whole mind-body connection or what we call you know, psychosomatic medicine. And, and just to be clear for your listeners, you know, psychosomatic doesn't mean that they're made up. That's to be distinguished from hypochondriasis, for example, people who think they have a symptom and exaggerate their symptom and there's really nothing wrong with them. People who have psychosomatic illness have real physical illnesses, but they are mediated by what's going on in your brain. So for example, you're anxious, your brain is going to send signals to the rest of your body and the rest of your body is going to express that anxiety in various ways, which we can get into, I get, I guess a bit later in terms of different kinds of illnesses. Same thing though, is if your brain is depressed, that's going to send signals to the rest of your body and those various organs are going to deal with depression in their own way. But I know that as a child, probably from, I'm not sure when it started, till at least the age of 12, I would have frequent recurrent respiratory illnesses, including sore throats, earaches, things that would keep me out of school, to the point where I lost so much school at one point that I was brought in for an evaluation by the school psychologist. And this was when I was in elementary school. I kind of remember aspects of this, not all the details, but I do remember her giving me all kinds of interesting, you know, tests. And then we played with puppets and she wanted me to like knock down certain puppets. And I guess she was trying to get a feel for what was going on with me and with my family that I was missing so much school. But I think... I will say though, that does seem pretty cutting edge for the time that they had that role in place and, you know, knew knew enough to have you assessed. Yes. I think they were worried that there was something going on in my house that I was like missing so much school. I mean, the good news is, you know, I was the bright kid and so I was able to sort of make everything up. But looking back to it now, you know, with with hindsight, so to speak, and with the education and experience I have, I believe that a lot of what I experienced were psychosomatic disorders, meaning there was so much stress in the house that I was absorbing and that it was being expressed in my body as different kinds of respiratory illnesses, which can happen because when you're under stress, it absolutely affects your immune system, which makes you more prone to various kinds of illnesses. can also increase inflammation in your body, which we didn't know at the time, but I know now, Mm -hmm. which can lead to various kinds of illnesses. So I believe that I was actually my own example of what a psychosomatic disorder is. Now, allegedly, this went away when I got my tonsils out when I was 12. But I think I also got to the point where I had a better recognition of what was going on. And so I could manage things a little bit better than as a small kid who was just getting sick all the time. And, you know, again, if I look back at this with my now psychiatry lens, I wonder if part of it was when I was sick, I got to stay home. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Right. Yeah. And I felt responsible for, for some reason, I felt I needed to take care of my mom, Mm -hmm. even though she probably didn't need any caretaking. She was a perfectly capable woman. But I think I felt so responsible for taking care of my mom because of what was going on between my parents that I think that was probably part of it as well. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And so often that can be the case when 
children have those additional caring responsibilities at home, that can exacerbate everything else. If you weren't, you know, the school were noticing then obviously the absence, but that could have also come out not just in, you know, the physical health symptoms, but also struggling with your academia, struggling to concentrate. Um, so many ways that that can then be exacerbated because you're a young person struggling to cope. And it's almost like in a sort of overly simplistic way, it's almost like the body can end up finding ways and outlets for that stress. Like it comes out I, somehow. I think, I think you're right on target, Bobby. And, you know, if I can sort of shift to some examples in my own practice. Well, just before we go into that, actually, I just wanted to ask you about what you mentioned with your parents and, and certain conditions that appeared to run in your family. To what extent, yeah. with your professional background, do you see that as kind of nature versus nurture? What's your understanding of how these conditions can be passed on? Because I, I know from the stats how common it is. That's a great question. You know, we know that anxiety disorders and, and depression can run in families. There probably is some link between personality disorders that run in families, but the genetic link hasn't really been worked out for that. However, I think that, you know, again, going back to my grandmother's circumstance, I don't know anything about her parents because I never met them. They all died during World War II. But clearly her environment mm -hmm. was a contributing factor to my grandmother's, I think, longstanding history of anxiety. I think that for my mom growing up in a family where her mom, her own mother, was an immigrant at a young age. And, and, and my grandfather, my, my maternal grandfather, who I never met because he died shortly after I was born, was also an immigrant. Mm -hmm. That, you know, many times, you know, immigrants to this country have a lot of anxiety about, you know, what's going on. Yeah. because they're not part of this culture. You know, in my grandparents' case, they didn't speak the language when they came to this country. They had to learn English. So I think there was always a fear that, you know, was everything going to be okay? What's going to happen next? Particularly coming from the kind of environment they came from in Europe, where World War I was just about to break out, and there was a tremendous sense of anxiety about what was going to happen to everybody. So at least in my grandmother's case, I can certainly identify the environmental factor, again, without knowing what her family history was like. In my mother's case, you know, living with a parent who's anxious, you know, is it nature versus nurture? Well, again, I think there's some component of that that was probably passed on genetically. But you grow up in an environment where there's a lot of anxiety. And again, this was during the Depression. This was in, my mom was born in 1920. So during the depression, there was that added burden of, you know, are we going to have enough food? You know, how are we going to deal with this? Just so many sociological, so to speak, stressors that as with many things, I think it was probably multifactorial. I think there's probably a genetic component. I'm certain there was an environmental component in terms of growing up in the family, but also, you know, the social component in terms of, we were not yet in World War II, but we were certainly in a depression during that time. And that was very hard for people, particularly those who were at the lower end of the socioeconomic class to begin with. On my father's yeah. side, you know, I can't ever tell you that my father was depressed, although he may have been, but he clearly had the same kind of personality disorder that his mother had. They were very kind of all or nothing thinkers. You know, it's black or it's white. There's good and there's bad. There's good people, there's bad people there was a sense of 
others around them existing so that they serve some purpose for my father and for my grandmother, meaning, you know, I think their, their favorite word is probably me, hmm. <laughs> like me, me, me. And you exist yeah, to serve some, some need. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, hey, you, know you, 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 others exist to serve some purpose for these people who, you know, think of themselves as me, me, me. And I think that, you know, in my father's case, you know, I was probably only as good as what he could brag about. Meaning, mm -hmm. if I did well in school, oh, great, I have a great student. I remember I was a competitive tennis player growing up. And my team was not doing particularly well. And when my father found out that my team was not doing particularly well, he never came to one of my matches because he didn't want to be associated with people who are losers. So, yeah, like I said, you, you exist to the extent that you serve some purpose yeah. for these individuals. And Well, it sounds like to an extent that the love was conditional on how useful you were to him. That, that's, that's pretty accurate. Fortunately, I had a mother who loved me unconditionally, so I turned out okay. But, you know, you can't help but be affected by the fact that you have two parents. Of course. So I think, and in some ways, quite honestly, Bobby, you know, I think it served me well in that the need to please led into the need to be successful so that I did do well in school. I, I was a good athlete. I did get awards. And I think in that way, it served me well in that, you know, my father liked to brag about my, the fact that, you know, my daughter did this, my daughter did that, you know, my daughter graduated with honors from college. My, he really got happy when I got my medical degree because then he could refer to me as my daughter, the doctor. And it was never my daughter. It was my daughter, the doctor. So again, I served some purpose until I didn't, which was when you stand up to someone like that and disagree with them and challenge them you serve no purpose because you're challenging their sense of themselves. Yeah, but that sounds like part of the tipping point that you took that kind of pressure you were under but were able to play it to your strengths, were able to make it an asset for you and not just him, gain a level of like education, academia, confidence that you could challenge him. Yeah, I was lucky in that I, I was able to use that to my benefit but, you know, there's always that sense, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, even going through, you know, higher education and medical school, even though I did do well, there's always a sense that, yeah, but I could fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I could fail. So I guess that's where the anxiety comes in. When I said I wasn't an anxious person, I think there was always that anxiety of what if, what if, yeah. what if I don't, what if I can't? Yes. And I know I have, a, I have a daughter who also went to medical school and I remember her saying to me, how did you do, how did you do that? Well, and I said, fear, the word is fear, constantly fear of not being, of failing. So, you know, it's sort of an overdo it or overextend it or overstudy or whatever to compensate for the fear of, you know, maybe not being good enough or fear of failing. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And having enough medical family members, I, I know through them just how tough mm -hmm. medical school is, you know, wherever you are in the world. And it's, mm -hmm. it is absolutely anxiety inducing. And I think there can also be such exacerbating factors in that because you're, you're often studying the same things you might be experiencing. Because there's something well known as first year medical student syndrome, where you think you've got every illness in the book as yeah. you're covering them in class. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have that. Oh, I probably have that. Yeah. Tough occupation. And 
you were going to tell me a bit more about areas you've studied in in what we were discussing off air, this term unexplained illnesses, but of course there is so much explanation here and I'll let you explain it better than I'm going to be able to. Okay, well you did fine, but so I'll just... (laughs) So the term medically unexplained symptoms in some ways is a misnomer in that they certainly can be explained. You just have to know where to look. But in the medical terms, at least in this country, and I believe you use it that way in the UK as well, medically unexplained symptoms are those that don't match up with objective findings such as physical exams, laboratory studies, or even you know imaging. It doesn't mean that the individual is not truly experiencing those symptoms because they are, but they seem in excess of what one would expect given the objective data. So, you know, that's my area of interest, and that's where I get a lot of referrals are from other either primary care doctors or specialists who have these individuals in their practice who are really doing their best to try to find out what's wrong with them, but just are unable to sort of pin it down. These are real illnesses based on what's going on in one's brain, because if you think of your brain as your big central computer... Think about all the little portals that come out of that. If you looked at a computer, you've got these little plugins for your USB and your other things. Think about your brain that way, and there's little plugins that go to various organs or organ systems. So if the central computer is experiencing something unpleasant, whether it's anxiety or depression, it's going to send signals through those little USB portals, so to speak. Mm-hmm to those organs, and those organs are going to feel them as well. Now, your heart's going to experience it differently than your gut, and your gut's going to experience it differently, for example, than your musculoskeletal system. But essentially, the process is the same. And the reverse is true as well. If there's something going on in, let's say, a peripheral organ system, your heart or your lungs or your gut, it's going to send signals back to the brain. It's like a, it's a two-way highway, so to speak. And so your brain's receiving this information, but it's also sending information back out so that a lot of these, again, quote, medically unexplained symptoms can be understood by trying to figure out what's going on in the central computer, your brain, and why and how it's sending messages to these different organ systems so that they develop into different diagnostic categories. Yeah, I love that explanation. And I think within that, that's a key part that's so often missed, that feedback loop that goes mm-hmm. on between different parts of your body and how that can be the thing that exacerbates the symptoms as opposed to right. the being a clear, here's where it started point, which a lot of the time medicine can be in that way of what, what is the cause when we're looking at anything physical. Sure. And it's it's not always that simple. And I'm reminded of something we, we talked about a bit during the pandemic, which I feel was kind of missed out in a lot of media coverage. There was a lot talked about mental health impact of lockdowns and certain measures, which I was pleasantly surprised by often. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that that was being covered so much. But there was often a missing piece of how certain mental health conditions could put you at increased risk in terms of COVID. And, you know, you touched on some of the examples earlier, how certain conditions can suppress your immune system. Absolutely. And just to get to your point about COVID, we know that the experience of having COVID can cause lots of physical illnesses, as we know about now, you know, myocarditis for one, you know, long-term lung issues for another. 
But what some people don't recognize, and actually something I've written about, is COVID can make you depressed. And it's not just because you feel pretty awful while you have it. It's because of the actual changes that are taking place in your brain by virtue of having COVID. When it first came out, I remember talking to one of my colleagues, who's a child psychiatrist, and I was saying to her, this is going to be a neurotoxic virus. And I remember her saying, what do you mean? I said, well, back in the day when I was in medical school, the virus of the day or the new virus coming out was HIV. So my medical school equivalent of COVID was HIV. And we learned that not only can HIV cause various damage to distant organ systems, but we also know that it has a direct impact on the brain. So that sometimes the first manifestation of HIV, again, back when I was in school, was a change in mental state, mental status. And it was later on diagnosed that these individuals were positive for HIV. Well, what can happen with COVID is it likes the brain. And so it, it basically bypasses what we call the blood-brain barrier, which is the protective mechanism that the brain has from letting toxins in. Mm -hmm. COVID has the ability to bypass that and, and make changes within the brain itself, including depression, anxiety, even thought disorders. There are examples of people becoming psychotic from having COVID. Now, it's reversible which is good. But I think people didn't recognize that in the beginning as, well, wait a minute, isn't this just because you don't feel good? Like, you know, you're tired and you have body aches. No, not just that. Yes, that's part of it, but it can actually cause thought disorders. And now when we talk about long COVID for the individuals who have long COVID, one of the things that you hear about is they're foggy. They can't think clearly. Yeah. And, and that's probably what it is because of changes in the brain itself. Any kind of viral infection or even a you know, bacterial infection causes a process in the body called inflammation. And the inflammatory process itself causes changes in various organ systems, which is what we think is implicated in many psychosomatic disorders. So example, you experience stress, you experience depression. We know that inflammation can actually cause depression and is implicated and involved in depression. When you treat the depression, interestingly, in some cases, the inflammation gets better. So without getting too esoteric, I mean, there have been some studies that using what are called SSRIs, which are a particular kind of antidepressant, very well treats depression related to COVID. Mm -hmm. But in some studies, it actually improves the inflammation of the virus itself. So these hospitalized patients actually got better when you gave them serotonin reuptake inhibitors along with the usual protocol to treat COVID, wow. which I think is fascinating. Yeah. But again, that, that just more and more, you know, implicates this whole brain-body connection, which is kind of so arbitrary because think about it, Bobby. <laughs> I mean, if I cut off your head, could you function? Yeah, well, exactly. Of course, of course <laughs> right? Of course not. Yeah. But seriously, I mean, for generations, they were thought of as two separate entities. And, you know, you've probably heard of a, a famous, you know, French philosopher called Descartes back in, I believe, the 16th century, and absolutely, they were two separate entities as far as he was concerned. The idea that they were connected, even though it dates back to Hippocrates' time, didn't become more popular, at least in this country, until 
Benjamin Rush, who actually founded the University of Pennsylvania here in the States, and who was a physician himself, started talking about this kind of connection. And it was developed later on by a doctor named George Engel into what we now know as psychosomatic medicine. But again, you think about it on the surface, what a silly idea that the brain and the body would be disconnected, right? It, it's so strange. Yeah. And yeah. I also notice, you know, even recently, there's, there's still such pushback that can come from this. And even that mm-hmm. phrase, mind-body connection, can be kind of trivialized and stigmatized in certain ways as being, you know, quote-unquote woo-woo. And I, right. I find that so baffling because, like we've said, of course, you know, the brain is in the body. Like, there's, there's such an obvious link here. And yet, a lot of the, the science has been kind of missing it out. You know, the, as you know, there's often these kind of big black holes that as much as the scientific method can do so much, there's still a reliance on people looking for evidence and studying the right areas. So there aren't gaps in the science. Yes, they are. And so, I mean, two things with regard to that. I think that in general, physicians go into medicine because they actually want to help people. Mm -hmm. But I also believe that if you're a specialist in a particular area and a patient comes to see you with these interesting and perhaps complicated constellation of symptoms, you're going to zero in on your area and look to fix that, perhaps without looking at the whole situation. And this is often what happens to the patients that eventually end up in my office. They've been to multiple doctors, not because they're doctor shopping, but because they're not getting the answer. And so, you know, Dr. X is going to do a neurological exam and say, you know, I don't just don't see anything. We can try this, but I'm just not seeing it. And that doesn't work. So then they end up in a different specialist office. They go to the infectious disease folks and they're like, yeah, we did the tests and, you know, we're not really seeing anything. And then they go to the rheumatologist because they get to see all the weird stuff, all the autoimmune stuff. And they're like, yeah, we can run an autoimmune panel, but it's just not fitting into the right category. Mm-hmm. So again, these are folks who unfortunately have been to multiple different doctors, often specialists who are doing their best. They're not trying to be difficult. They're doing their best, but they're just not coming up with the right answer because it's easy to zero in on your particular area and not look at the big picture. And I guess I I like to look at the big picture, which is why I find my area of practice so interesting because I have to know a lot about different areas of medicine. I have to know a lot of internal medicine. I have to know a lot of neurology. And I have to, I've had to learn a lot about autoimmune disorders because that's a lot of what I see. So, you know, if you can look at the big picture, I think that you're more likely to zero in on something that would be helpful to the individual rather than just target one organ system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what would you say to any listeners that might be relating to that experience of going to multiple specialists and nothing mm-hmm. is identified or maybe something is identified but they run out of tests to do and you may be sent elsewhere. Is, is there a way that you can request often uh, to speak to someone like yourself? What would be the next step, sir? In this country, I would recommend that they see a psychiatrist who's had experience in psychosomatic medicine. And we do get special, I did a fellowship in psychosomatic medicine. Medically unexplained symptoms in this country account for probably 30 million people, which is 10% of the U.S. population. When I was doing my research to document 
really how many people this affects. This is not unique to America. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the UK, this is still very, very prevalent. And I believe it's still about 10% of all National Health Service visits would be explained by medically unexplained symptoms. Yeah, similar here in Ireland as well. Yeah, and I just I would say to your to your listeners, don't give up just because one specialist says there's nothing wrong with you and you know there is. They're not trying to be difficult. They're just basing their answer on the diagnostic tests they do. So find someone who has expertise in this whole area. And like you said, mind-body connection has gotten to be like woo-woo. See, in this country, it's not so woo-woo. I mean, we have a lot of treatment options. Some involve medication, but some don't. I mean, think about it. Mindfulness, which I believe is popular in your country too, Mm -hmm. is all based upon mind-body, right? Because you're trying to focus your mind and be centered. But it doesn't just take place in your brain. It takes place in the rest of your body. And there's lots of literature, medical literature, on the effectiveness of mindfulness in treating lots of serious medical conditions. And so this is not woo-woo stuff. You know, there's a book that's been on the bestseller list for I don't even know how many weeks. You know, The Body Keeps the Score. And that's about trauma and the and the experience of trauma on the body long term. But it's not unique to trauma. It's I can't think of a single medical condition that doesn't have some component of mind body connection. I mean, maybe chickenpox. But again, okay, you get exposed to an infectious disease. Guess what? Infectious disease causes inflammation. Inflammation affects your whole body. So that's why there are some long term sequelae from people who get reactivated chickenpox it's called shingles mm-hmm. and shingles, yeah, shingles is is basically reactivated virus that is the chickenpox virus and there is a huge connection between that and significant stress so when does shingles come out oftentimes after a major stressor mm-hmm. yeah. in one's life uh, well that was exactly for me and mm-hmm. I was so stressed at the time. I remember it was even surreal that I was reading a book by Hilary DeVay, who's an incredible businesswoman. And in the book, she she was talking about like where she was at with her life. And I think she nearly lost the business at various points. And then she didn't even realize she had shingles because she was so flat Mm -hmm. out working that other people Mm -hmm. had to point out to her of, you know, what is happening. And she had it on her face, which we know can be so dangerous because if it reaches right. your eye, it can affect your sight. And I read that just as, as I was going through it. Yep. Think about the most famous case recently that's been in social media, Justin Bieber. Mm-hmm. Justin Bieber developed a syndrome called Ramsey Hunt, where he had paralysis on one side of his face. It's caused by reactivation of a virus. Guess what? Those things get worse after stress. Know what happened the month before he broke out? His wife was hospitalized for a stroke. Yeah. So there you have it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the more I look into this this area of health, the more, you know, you can't stop then seeing the links. Mm-hmm. And I think there must be something so empowering for the people you get to work with when you can make these links and they can have an explanation behind something that that may have gone overlooked or undiagnosed for so long. I've had one recently. Do I have a moment to tell you of about course. it? Of course. Yeah. I always love a positive story. Okay. At the end. Yeah. 
this was a great this was a great one and and she's a lovely woman and actually she she's going to allow me to write about her when I finish the books that I'm writing so I'm she's going to be included in it but it's a lovely woman in her 60s called me I don't know about a month ago saying I'm not sure if you can help me I've been to all these different doctors no one seems to have an answer for what's going on but I I heard that you can you, you're good at this I'm like well I'll do my best please come in so she came in with her husband they both looked like they walked out of an LL Bean catalog would your listeners know what that is I, I don't know what that is no it's like an outdoorsy people who like buy like kind of outdoors like Patagonia okay yeah, yeah. or regatta we'd have here right so they looked like they walked out of a cat like one of those catalogs meaning they had like all the you know outdoorsy stuff mm-hmm. and they looked very fit like they were tan they had been outside and they both sat down on my couch and she looked like a shell of a person even though on the outside she looked pretty good but I mean her husband had to do most of the talking this is someone who was very very active would be long distance biking and hiking and swimming and loved to spend time with her children and her grandchildren but for the let's see I saw her in June so since November of 2020, she has developed these weird symptoms that were basically making her feel disabled. So the first one was kind of a weird kind of tingling and numbness in her left calf. And she didn't make much of it, except that it got worse. And then it spread to the other side. And then it spread to her back. And there were these weird symptoms she was having that were making her feel like she was, you know, she was in pain. She couldn't engage in the kind of active, you know, physical hobbies or activities that she would like to do previously. And ultimately it took a toll, you know, on her psyche in the sense that she had become quite depressed, that she couldn't do all these things and couldn't like get off the couch. So she had been to, and I'll lose track of how many doctors she had been to, her primary care doctor, neurologist, neurosurgeon, orthopedist, infectious disease. I can't think of any more than that, but she had had multiple different kinds of protocols. All her lab work was fine. She had slight discrepancy in her nerve conduction on that area of her left leg where she was having that funny symptom, but there was nothing wrong with her back based upon MRIs. And yet she went through all the stuff. She had nerve blocks. She had physical therapy. She had chiropractor. She had, she even had stem cell therapy injected into her back and nothing was really working. So I'm listening to this and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, geez, you know, <laughs> what do I got to offer? Until I asked her, okay, well, can you tell, was anything happening to you? Like right before this took place? No, no, no. And then her husband was like, wait, you have to tell her about all those deaths. I was like, what? Well, again, Bobby, I'm going to lose track of how many. Mm-hmm. In the 15 years leading up to this, there were at least 10 deaths, traumatic deaths, of young people that were somehow linked to her, either by marriage or they were children of friends. So one was killed in a suicide bomber in Israel. Two of them were killed in motor vehicle accidents. One was killed in a climbing accident. Two of them overdosed. One was a suicide And the last event that took place one month before she developed her symptoms, her son was hit by a car. Now, he survived, which was great, but this cumulative amount of extraordinary psychological trauma took its toll on this woman. So the way I explained it to her was, 
you know, I said, think about it as a container. Like in chemistry, we use these things called beakers to do experiments. So if you pour everything correctly and you follow directions, things stay contained within the beaker. However, sometimes things overflow. And as I explained it to her, I said, this is what's happened to your brain. Your brain is like a beaker that couldn't contain it anymore. And so it basically said to the rest of your body, all right, you guys handle it now. Okay, leg, you handle this. Back, you handle this. This so-and-so, you handle this. It couldn't handle it anymore, which she had her doubts about. But then the more she thought about it, she's like, okay, okay, well, maybe. So I started her on medication. On, and she was also depressed. I started her on an antidepressant, which is actually good for depression, but it's also good for these neuromuscular and, and nerve kind of discomforts. And she begged me to start it on the super low dose. So I started on the lowest dose I possibly could. Really encouraged her to take it. I saw her this week, Monday, and you would not know it's the same person. And it's not because I'm such a genius, because I'm really not, but I listen. Mm -hmm. And I know when people have been under extraordinary amounts of stress and what it does to your brain and to your body, it causes changes. And that's all I had to do is just get the story. And most specialists don't have the time like I do mm -hmm. to spend time with someone and get the story. I mean, I schedule an hour appointment for a new patient. And a lot of these specialists, they got to roll them in and out, you know, like three in an hour. I have a luxury. And I know what to look for because this is my area of interest and expertise. So, I mean, literally, I said to her, you know, you made my day. I said, I'm so happy that you're feeling better. And she's like, oh, you don't understand. I can actually leave the house now. I don't have to be stuck on the couch. I mean, I'm looking for things to do. I'm like, great. Her story is a great example of what it means to have a psychosomatic disorder, meaning you have real stuff, real symptoms going on. But clearly what's been happening to your brain has it had an impact on the development or maintenance of these symptoms? And the doctors that she saw were really very well-meaning. There's some really good ones. I mean, I know some of the ones she saw. You just, like I said, you zero in on one area of the body because that's what you can do something about to the neglect of the whole situation. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And on that positive note, then we'll wrap up there. So if people want to find more of your work, look out for the upcoming book, where should they go online? Oh, that would be so fun. Thank you. So the name of the book, hopefully from your work, your <laughs> mouth to God's ears, is going to be called It's Not Just in Your Head, Deciphering Medically Unexplained Symptoms. I am just finished the first draft. You can find me on psychologytoday.com. I have a blog. You can find me on my website, susanbtrackmanmd.com. I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn. And what else am I on? Twitter. Twitter, 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 Twitter. But yes, I would look forward to hearing from anyone. And I do get back to people. So I promise if you, if you contact me, I will get back to you. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll wrap up there. Bobby, thanks for the privilege. I really enjoyed this so much. Thank you. You're so easy to talk to. <laughs> oh, well, so are you. It's been a pleasure. Please invite me again. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. 
Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit.